The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to What's Working in Washington Extra. Bubbles and crashes, the boom and bust of technological innovation. That's the topic for today. It's also the topic of a recent book by that name by Professors Brent Coldfarb and David Kirsch of the Robert H. Smith School of Business, the colleagues of mine, and I'm really happy to have them here. Brent, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jonathan. And David, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Nice to see you. Well, I think that you've written a very important book. It's very topical, and I want to talk about um, bubbles and crashes because, frankly, I think that a lot of us in the innovation community are really interested in things like technological cycles. Where are we? Is there another one coming? What happens when an economy blows up? How's There's so many questions, and I find these days when I talk with people about innovation, there's a little bit of a sense of whistling in the graveyard I get from a lot of folks. You know, are we in a bubble? What does this mean? What's the next big thing? And you've just spent a good chunk of time really delving into it. So this is a timely time uh, for us to get together and talk about this. So, Brent, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Sure. Bubbles. Uh, bubbles mean many things to different people. You've drilled down, you and David. What does a bubble mean from a standpoint of really having done the research? A bubble is a rise and fall in a price of an asset or a technology or a stock uh, that isn't justified by reason. So in some sense, if you're an investor, what you really care about is just the movement of the stock up and down. Because why it happened, you can still lose money or make money either way. It becomes particularly interesting when the bubble or the, the stock goes up, but the reasoning behind why that happened and the reason people invested was kind of dumb. Is it a retrospective thing, David? So, for example, the as you mentioned in the book, the rise of RCA, Rated Corporation of America, you know, going up through the Great Depression and then the bubble bursting and not recovering value for 30 years or – is it a retrospective thing, or are there certain aspects, or are there other characteristics to it? To identify a bubble, you need to look, and, and in the in the book we develop a model that looks over a, a kind of a seven-year running uh, window. We do look backwards and say, well, you know, what happened, and we use we use hindsight. In in practice, of course, for investors, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, and there were I several do. cases where we would have expected a bubble, but in fact, the technology just sort of, or, or the, the industry sort of bailed out those early investors. So things like television, which was, you know, a pretty crazy thing. Uh, wow, they're moving people on a screen. Uh, uh, yeah. that, and it had many of the aspects uh, that we associate with the causes of bubbles, but it turned out, and, and it did go up uh, I think we – I forget exactly the number. I think it went up two standard deviations, but it didn't go down. It, it, you know, there was a, like a little window. In the end, television kind of worked. Now, we could contrast that with radio, which really didn't work. Investors in RCA in 1929 uh, who bought the stock in 1929 didn't uh, recover until the 1950s. Right. But I think what, what ends up happening in the case of television is people sort of learn from radio. And the business model, a lot of the stories going on around television, I think people are able to understand because they are in some way similar. It's visual radio. So that that ends up 
uh, not being not being a bubble. But I think there is to, to back to your general question. We we are looking at both the rise and the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, you know, it's not a bubble if it doesn't pop. Well, yes, a fair comment. Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting, actually, is something we describe a little bit in the book about this investor in the 1922. And she had gone to a department store and she had heard uh, she had heard the radio. And you can imagine 1922. This is really interesting uh, that that you can transmit voice in this way. And, and so that was super exciting. Mm -hmm. So she wrote into the editor of the New York Tribune, Tribune the New York Tribune, uh, yeah. as it happens. Uh, and she wrote and said, like, this is a great, I, I'm paraphrasing, but this is such a cool thing. This is a great idea. Give me the name of a stock that you know will make money. Mm -hmm. And so she's <laughs> obviously naive in terms of, of, of investing, uh, but perhaps more than that, she understood quickly that radio would be useful. And I think that uh, we here in this radio studio can here attest to the idea that radio is a useful thing. But at that time, it was simply unknowable how to make money. And moreover, she presumed that whoever the, 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 the part of the market that would make money were th those who were producing radio sets. And it turns out completely wrong. It was the- It was the broadcasters. It was the broadcasters, those that created content. It was the same issue as you pointed out and other people have pointed out, the electric industry. You know, a lot of it really is an industry technology comes about and people aren't quite sure what the business model is. Yeah. Let's let's um, talk about it from the standpoint of so bubble. You look at it, you can identify it. It's not lasting value creation. It it, it pops. You've identified certain characteristics that bubbles have, and, and this is what triggered me. You mentioned the the woman saying, "Oh, this is really cool." It seems like a pattern in a lot of these bubbles is an unsophisticated or new entrant into a market getting excited and just I don't care what it is, I just want to buy it. Is that is that one of the indications of a bubble? Well, for sure. On we are. One of the features or elements of the of the model in the book, and one of the things that we we pay a lot of attention to, is the presence of what we call novice investors. So, if there are novice investors in the market, and you could think of this as sort of excess liquidity, if you know, that's sort of how the finance people would talk about it, but it, more particularly, if there are people who are sort of susceptible to a good story, mm -hmm. uh, that is a danger sign. And those can be individual investors, like Brent was talking about in the case of 1922 and radio, or it could be, you know, we we identified a whole group of first-time angel investors in Silicon Valley. These were, you know, Facebook and Google millionaires who just happened to have been in the right place at the right time yeah. and were then, you know, making all of them, 4,500 of them were making their first angel investment. Over those the, are over novice, the last 10 years. Yeah, right. those are novice investors. Those people are probably um, unsophisticated and don't know what they're doing when it comes to private equity. They may have been very good coders or have been in the right place at the right time. And by the same token, it doesn't necessarily have to be a technology-related thing. I think, for example, of the mortgage banking crisis and the idea that the, the collateralized mortgages, which frankly, having been a trader, I can tell you nobody really understood, but it didn't matter because they were AAA rated and people just bought yield and is that informed, right, Brent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's even worse than that. It's not only that that those who are creating them may not have understood and there might have been fraud, but think about who is buying those. Yes. And that's like without some group or some money that was in buying these uh, mortgage-backed securities, there wouldn't have been a bubble because it wouldn't have been fueled because it would have stopped at the banks. Mm-hmm. 
and and, and so I think that's the, the the those were the novices of that particular bubble alongside the new home buyers, which we more, more which so we kind of blame. so clearly then uh, your your research shown and and I think this comports with my worldview is that when you have people who get overexcited about a narrative and don't really understand what's going on, it's much more susceptible to a an increase or a ridiculous increase of valuation. What are some of the other indications that, that you uh, think we can look at to say, oh, we're in a dangerous place? Well, you've kind of hit on two of them, mm-hmm. which is the novices and the narratives. And I'd like to come back to the narratives. I would like you to do that. Okay. But first, okay. first, first, I want to talk briefly. Like, there's two other things that are kind of important. Uh, actually, one's really important, which is in many new technologies, it's not possible to directly invest in a company that is commercializing that technology. Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, if we just like for, for a moment think about uh, the modern day, if you will, uh, in, in electric vehicles, if not for Tesla, mm. you would not have a way to invest directly in the electric vehicle Market. Or maybe Neo now. Neo has maybe just, Neo maybe, now, has, but is, until very recently, available. And I suppose if you, you know, maybe you could get into some Chinese markets and BYD or things. But it's, it's very, very hard. Well, maybe so but, artificial intelligence, for example, if yeah. you really want to do a big play in, in AI, do you buy Google or you buy Amazon or Facebook? Exactly. <laughs> you buy Mobileye. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's good. <laughs> and, and then the other thing that's okay. important is like, there's got to be a, there's usually a lot of uncertainty about the future value of the technology. So you're, you're probably not going to get a bubble in subway franchises. Yes. It seems pretty unlikely. Right. The, yeah, the range of outcomes of a subway franchise are pretty narrow. It's going to be pretty good, pretty bad. So it's, it. an, it's a narrative and an opportunity uh, that, that parses towards a high growth scenario. Yeah. Okay. And so there, there is an element with all these things that it has to at least pass some sort of smell test, whether it's third world lending cause countries never go bankrupt or subprime or electric cars. It has to pass the smell test, right? It, it, yeah. Well, no, I think that's no. where the narrative. Tulips. No, but I think that's where the narrative comes in. The narrative, certain technologies. We, we, we've talked about the idea of technologies having, a sort of, different levels of narratability. That's a kind of a hmm. crazy word. I'm I not, like it. We haven't really used it yet in many syllables. Yeah, a lot narratability. But the idea of narratability is that certain technologies are more av- avail themselves of of narratives and other technologies, you can't spin that many stories about them. So if there's no narrative to attach to the technology, then it's unlikely to sort of generate the bubble behavior because you can't get excited about it. Bubbles come when you've got a good story to tie together some loosely or some some very uncertain ideas about the world. And you have to have that narrative to put it together. And it's a lot easier to tell a story about human flight than it is about new steelmaking technology. Because mm-hmm. nobody really cares unless you're in the steel industry. But it, it's not that interesting to talk about steel making technologies. I've, I've bored some dates about that. Um, you say that with pride, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, if you want to talk, if you're in a world where there are no jet planes and, and flight is this new thing, and the idea of being able to go from New York to Chicago in five hours as opposed to 20, that's a big deal. 
It is a big deal. And that's a very interesting kernel. And when we come back after the break, let's talk about how tightly intertwined technology really is in this phenomenon and, and what it means for how we're going to grow our economy. So we're going to talk about that when we come back here on What's Working in Washington Extra. We're here with Professor Brent Goldfarb, Professor David Kirsch from Robert H. Smith School of Business. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. And we're back in this What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm here in the studio with Brent Coldfarb and David Kirsch, both professors at Robert H. Smith School of Business. We're talking about bubbles and crashes. Gentlemen, before the break, we we told our audience we're going to come back and talk about technology and, and how it relates to bubbles. And it strikes me that um, uh, we should have that conversation, but also the role of narrative. It, it seems that particularly these days, we've gotten so efficient at telling stories with social media, uh, internet, and so forth that there's an awful lot of temptation on the part of companies now to shape their narratives and almost create bubbles, you know, a Lyft or an Uber, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Without question, it was actually kind of shocking. Uh, David pointed out to me earlier this week uh, uh, a nice article about Lyft and its upcoming IPO. So we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, presumably in the second quarter uh, sometime. Uh, but one of the things they did was they were discounting rides to raise their market share so that they could take that market share onto the roadshow. Mm. Uh, to, 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 but that doesn't tell us anything about the underlying viability of the business. That just means that they're willing to lose more money to tell a good story and create and weave a nice narrative around ride sharing. That is a perfect ingredient for a bubble. And that's kind of the, what we describe in the book. If I were an investor, and I'm watching this being reported, I would not fall for that. Well, you raise an interesting point, which is that, you know, so some companies that buy market share, I think of Amazon, for example. I mean, for years, they were they were buying market share and subsidizing their their uh, their costs in order to get a monopoly position, which they, they achieved. You know, you could understand that strategy, right? And a sophisticated investor could look through it and say, all right, that makes sense to me. And again, this seems to come back to what we were talking about in the first segment, is that a bubble – by its nature, people get excited and they don't, it sounds like they don't ask the hard questions. I think that's right. Part of it is when things are uncertain and there is still a lot of uncertainty, it's easier to discount expertise or to kind of put forward competing narratives or competing explanations. When a company like Lyft goes out and says, uh, we're going to do all these things, we're going to leverage our base of of, of customers and we're going to grow in all these markets and and they tell a story about the future and describe that in, in rosy terms. We don't know that it's not true. And because it is a relatively new industry and there, there is legitimate uncertainty about what will happen. So part of what makes technology interesting and exciting to study and, and potentially exciting to invest in 
is that uncertainty, is the upside, what might happen. But, I, but, but in a lot of cases, we don't hear about the failures, the downside, the things that could go wrong. No, no entrepreneur I've ever met with uh, when they're looking for investment dollars from me tells me about how they fail. But of course, I can say that I've never invested in somebody unless I understood how they dealt with failure because you learn a lot more from somebody about how they're going to perform. And I think the same is true for companies. Is that what you're getting at? We need to get past the, the hype? Well, certainly, but I, we were thinking about it also in the context of how companies should be required to be forthright about the kinds of risks that they're facing. So if you, you know, when you open that prospectus, the, the lift uh, prospectus, whenever that happens to drop, you'll be looking at something where all the risk is written in boilerplate legalese. I'm sure you've drafted many I, of those things in your yes. day. Yep. You know, this bad thing might happen. We cannot assure this. Uh, our our future, there are un, uh, unknown risks to which we are, may, may be susceptible. There is lots of uncertainty, It's but it's this very uh, kind of clinical yeah. boiler legal boilerplate. But mean, then the story about growth is, oh, look, all the cool things that are going to happen. And there the, the, the story is told in a connected way with actual people doing actual things and, and the pictures of people's lives made better. So, you know, in a way, our thought was, well, maybe we should ask the SEC to require of the uh, companies seeking public funding that they tell the the downside stories with the same protagonists and and the same uh, sort of narrative structure that they tell that they talk about the, that, the that upside. Is I'll tell you when I was a securities lawyer, which you alluded to, uh, my biggest challenge was keeping the entrepreneurs out of trouble. And I, I did have one who we were going public, and he had all these great things he wanted to tell people. And I kept saying, "No, you understand. The more you tell people they can lose money, the better it is for you." So finally, he lost his temper and he yelled at me. And he said, "Why don't you just tell everybody that the sun could stop burning?" And I said, "That's a good idea. I'll add that." And he walked. He walked out of the room. He, I, I, I won that moment. But the, the issue ultimately is that uh, we seem to be operating in, particularly the tech economy, in a uh, a, a bubble a, a bubble of um, excitement from the standpoint of it's you know you talk with an entrepreneur and we work with them at the Smith School and elsewhere. How are you doing? I'm killing it. You know, the, the whole idea is entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship, it's always optimistic, always optimistic. Um, so, you know, David, you mentioned to me a bit earlier, Stephen Perlstein has written and said, we're now basically in a bubble economy. We're, we're addicted to bubbles. I mean, mm -hmm. can, you know, first of all, what do you think he meant by that? And how does that relate to our what we're talking about today? Well, I think that, you know, we obviously had a very se severe bubble in 2008 uh, related to real estate and for many people that those memories are still very fresh but it, it feels like we don't know what the first correction post great recession will look like i think there's a lot of thinking and i think this was uh, perlstein's point that we could just be going bubble to bubble that we we sort of managed to dig our way out of that 2008 bubble and we're just going to go headlong into the next one because that's all we know how to do at this point. Well, go ahead, Brent. So so we, we obviously you can't know if you're in a bubble right. by definition. Like you only know this ex post, but there are some things that we – there's signs that we can look at and we should look at and we should teach people to look at uh, very carefully. And one is 
what is the narrative behind the market at any or any stock or any industry at any given point in time? And if there is a good or even a too good to be true story that is appealing to a lot of people and individuals who may not have a deep understanding of that stock or that market, then we should be worried. So, for example, if you know, one of the questions uh, I would always ask about a stock or, or, or an industry is, are the people investing the same people using the service? Because if you're using the service or if you're a customer, you may think, oh, I understand this. I'm driving a Tesla. This is a great car. I'm sure it's a and great- And therefore a great investment. And therefore it's a great company. But the business of making cars and the business of driving cars are different things. Mm-hmm. And the economics behind driving a car are hard. And, so, and, and that insight, that extra insight is something that's necessary to make a smart investment. And it's not always clear to us as, as scholars and observers that those making that investment are doing that extra legwork of thought. And what's fascinating to me is that even when you have a bunch of sophisticated people involved, like say uh, Theranos and the diagnostic company, Silicon Valley, that's a, a, a company bubble, but it turned out the billion dollars in valuation were supported by non-existent technology. This is a really hard thing to do. Um, so are we gonna have to just accept that with a technological society where we have to keep pushing things to the edge to find new wealth creation, that the bubble's just inevitable? Or do you think that we can have our cake and eat it too? Well, in some sense, we will always be making bets. This is just fundamental to capitalism and to entrepreneurship that you're going to make bets that are going to fail. Some of those bets are good bets and we should be making those bets and, and you, you know, investors and entrepreneurs will lose money because of that. And that's fine. And there's no way around that. That's a nature. That's in the nature of the system. However, we also live, as you mentioned, in this hyper narrative, hyper media world, where ideas and narratives can catch on and not be critically examined. And I don't see any reason. And maybe David does. Uh, I don't see any reason why we can't learn to slow down a little bit and make critical decisions and, and, and be much more careful about where we put our money. What do you think, David? I think that's a fair point. And you could think about, uh, I guess I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the idea of the internet as friction-free capitalism. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, that yeah, phrase. Yeah, I put that in my buggy whip for that yeah. narrative. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe a little bit of friction is actually a good thing. Things that slow us down a little bit slow down decision-making, slow down uh, uh, tr- stock trading. There's, it's very hard for, for me uh, to see how always faster, always more information is always better or leading to better decisions about things, important things like the future of technology. And, and the reason is that is because we make decisions based on stories and narratives. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that instantly, or at least we can't do that instantly in a critical way. So as we come to the end of our time together, it strikes me that what you've identified as certain characteristics of what makes a bubble, a compelling narrative, maybe something that is not easily understood by people, noobs coming into the marketplace, and it all comes together and creates a lot of velocity and, and a, a change in value that may not be supportable. So if I'm listening to this and I'm a, I'm a sophisticated investor, I'm a thoughtful investor, these are things I can see. So in in some ways, it, it appears to me like you've actually given 
people who are sophisticated investors or people who are worrying about the next bubble, you've given them some tools here. Yeah, in fact, we have in our in our book, we have a list of questions that any investor should be asking about uh, a new investment if they think that they're in, in a bubble. Uh, and they're pretty specific. There must be 20 questions there about you know the level of uncertainty, the, the narratability, the technology, and, and more. So there you have it. We've actually come to the end of our time together and we provided a compelling reason why people listening should go off and buy Bubbles and Crashes, written by our guest, Professor Brent Goldfarb and David Kirsch from Robert H. Smith School of Business. Brent, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having us. David, it's great to see you too. Thanks for coming. Likewise. Great to be here. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Recently, I published an op-ed for CNBC on the legal rights of robots. Needless to say, I got a lot of commentary on that piece, and some people were worried about the onslaught of robots in the workplace, and they should be. By 2025, robots and machines driven by AI and other technologies are predicted to perform half of all the productive functions in the workplace. And yet, we have no legal rules, regulations getting ready for their presence in the cubicle next door to you. We have Me Too. We have employee benefits. We have EEOC. We have all kinds of legal regulations affecting humans, and yet we've not thought through the rights of these automated friends in the workplace. Gone are the days of robots that will be merely mechanical. We are training robots to think like us, to feel emotion, to have emotional intelligence. We're going to have to anticipate their needs as functioning members of the workplace. These questions are very difficult to answer, but considering the issues is an important step that all employers and employees must consider now if our society hopes to achieve this notion of singularity and symbiosis of machine integration into the workplace. In the next five years, we're all going to need an entirely new set of labor and employment regulations affecting EEOC, unions, workplace violence, even the ownership of intellectual property, termination of robots, vacation time, employee benefits, family leave, and downsizing, not to mention a whole new set of social and workplace norms and best practices. Within 10 years, robots and machines driven by artificial intelligence are predicted to perform half, that's half, of all productive functions in the workplace. We need to get ready. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.